Hey there, welcome to the podcast. This is Jonathan Edwards with pureandsimplebible.com, and I'm so thankful that you're with us once again. Now, today and next time, I have Brother R.C. Cope from Oakdale, California. Great young man. I've really enjoyed getting to know him over the years recently. He's joining me to talk about the first murder, and uh, what I'm going to call this study is Lessons from Abel's Grave. What we're going to look at in this first murder in Genesis chapter 4 are some ways uh, that we can learn from Abel uh, both before he died and after he died. And so R.C. is going to do a great job uh, of leading us in a study of Genesis 4. And we've got three big points to make. So why don't we get started and jump into the podcast? What I like to do first is give the guest an opportunity to introduce themselves because even though I know you, maybe others don't. So why don't you uh, take a minute and uh, tell us who you are, where you're from, and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So for everyone who doesn't know me, my name is R.C. Cope or Russell Cope, whatever you'd like. I worship at the congregation in Oakdale, California. And now I I haven't been a member of the church my whole life. Um, I've only been added to the Lord's church about three years ago. And so there's, we could talk about that if you'd like, but it's of course been one of the greatest blessings of my life. In high school as a junior, I was converted. And ever since then, everything's gone uphill. About two years ago, uh, brother Jimmy Kading moved to Oakdale, California. And so it's been a privilege of mine to be able to study under him and Lord willing, I hope to be able to preach if that's God's will. And so that's kind of where I'm at right now and who I am. So uh, we joke about this. It's it's not true for the person out there who is maybe a little bit sensitive to the term, but you're kind of like the, the youth pastor, right? Well, yes, <laughs> I'm pretty much the youth pastor. All just, of the get, actual... just getting on the actual title, but you do work with Jimmy yes. and you're younger. You, you do a lot of Bible studies with younger people, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's a lot of my work is Bible studies, really. That takes up a significant portion of what I do is studies with the younger people, studies with really anybody who's willing to study in the congregation. Okay. Um, and it's a, it's a privilege. It's a privilege. It's also a skill. I'm, I'm really thankful to hear that you're doing that because I think personal Bible study may be harder than uh, pulpit preaching. And sometimes, and that's just my opinion, maybe uh, you don't share it, but I've found that the art of leading a Bible study well is definitely um, uh, a skill that that can be worked on and and enhanced. What are your thoughts on that? Well, absolutely. Well, I think the difference we have between pulpit preaching and a Bible study is really someone can ask you questions about anything Mm -hmm. related to your topic or not. And that's intimidating. But, you know, I try to tell people that it is intimidating, but at the same time, it's better that you talk to somebody about the Bible than you don't say anything at all. You know, we talked about how I was converted. You know, I was younger. People on this podcast may or may not know Luke Goad, but I went to high school with Luke Goad. And so we would talk about the Bible all the time. And given we were 15, 16, and so we didn't know everything. And so when Luke and I would talk about the Bible, he didn't always have answers to all the questions I gave. And that's no slight at him. He was 15, 16 years old, you know. But the big thing was, is that he was just willing to talk about it. 
And over a period of two or three years, as he continued to talk to me about it, even though he didn't knew, know everything, it was compelling because he could open his Bible and he could put his finger on why uh, he did X, Y, or Z, what the biblical reason was for that. And so Bible study can be intimidating, but a lot of the times it just takes showing somebody something and letting the word do its job. Yeah. Yeah. There, I'm, I'm not young. I'm not old. I'm kind of in the middle. Um, but even at my age, I find that it's easy to overcomplicate that process where, you know, Paul said that uh, he planted and Apollos watered and, and God was the one who gave the increase. And sometimes as gardeners, we want to plant and water and give the sunlight and weed and till the soil and fertilize it and yep. expecting that like somehow we're going to do it just right to where we'll lead them to the, to the Lord. And uh, yeah, it sounds like the experience that you've had is that there was definitely some seed planting in your life and some watering, but there was the expectation that, that you had to respond to it and that God would provide the increase. Yeah, absolutely. And something that Jimmy's taught me and told me that's always been very helpful to me is when you plant the seed, if it works and it grows, it's not because of you. But mm -hmm. if it doesn't work and it doesn't grow, it's also not because of you. The power is in the word. The power is in the seed. And so that's really a great pressure off of me. And I have to remind myself of that a lot because it's very easy to get up in your own head and say, well, I didn't say X, Y, or Z perfectly. I didn't phrase that how I wanted, but really the power is not in us. We're just instruments. We're just the mouthpiece, just guiding people to the word of God. And so that's helpful to me. Maybe that's helpful to someone else. I hope so. You know, I wish I could take what you just said and upload it you know, into the mind of every believer, because I do hear that often. There is this sometimes spoken, oftentimes it's unspoken. People are too afraid to even say it, but that they don't want to study the Bible because of all the unknown variables of not knowing enough or not doing it right. And they hold themselves to such a high standard. And uh, so, yeah, I think even though this isn't the topic we're going to uh, study together, I think it's a good thing for people to hear, not just from me, but from others that take the pressure off yourself. It's not about you. It's about the Lord. Absolutely. Amen to that. So with, uh, let's, let's do a pivot, a strong pivot into a completely different subject. <laughs> and <laughs> we're going to talk about murder today, right? We are going to talk about murder. <laughs> That's exactly right. So it's exactly right. It's uh, not maybe as peppy as, uh, as encouraging people to study their Bible, but this could be something that someone brings up. Maybe that's going to be the connection I'll make is somebody's going to ask you about uh, murder or about the first murder, as your study is called, the first murder. And uh, so I guess I'd like to know, I'd like to maybe hear your thoughts on the genesis of this sermon, pun intended. I know it's a study in Genesis, <laughs> but I want to know what you were thinking when you sat down and said, hey, you know, I, I need to help people understand more about the first murder. Well, you know what? This kind of ties back into the conversation that we just had. Actually, the inspiration for this sermon comes from a study series that Brother Jimmy does with people when he has personal studies. And so that's where the inspiration came from for me. And what's amazing and why it really motivated me is because when we look at the story, we're going to talk about Cain and Abel. That's the first murder in the Bible. When we look at this story, we see a lot of practical, simple points that 
really encouraged me because what we see is throughout the Bible, of course, you know, we live under the New Testament. We no longer live under the Old Testament, but we still worship the same God. And God has always had the same character. He's always had similar expectations for his people, although we might have been under different law systems. And so what's really cool to me is being able to look at this study, being able to look at Genesis 4 and really see what the New Testament has to say about it and what some of the practical applications are. In fact, this first part of the study, I think, is a really good thing to maybe bring up with a friend. We're going to talk about, not to get ahead of myself, but we're going to talk about worship. And I think there's some really good lessons about worship in this first part of Genesis 4 when we study Cain and Abel. And when we're talking to other people, you know, I like to have things illustrated. I like to have things told in a story. I'm just kind of learned that way. And so maybe other people are like that as well. And so when we look at the story of Cain and Abel, uh, I think we can really explain some important, fundamental New Testament principles, but from the original first book of the Bible, Genesis. Okay. Now, you you say it's in Genesis, and uh, for for those that are familiar with the scriptures, we know it's in Genesis chapter 4, but your first scripture is not Genesis. And so... Uh, I'm curious about why we're going to start elsewhere in a Bible study about Genesis 4. Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. And so the first verse that I have in this study is Hebrews 11.4. It's kind of the opening verse, the theme verse. And so I'll read it and I'll kind of explain why I have it here. So Hebrews 11 and verse 4 reads, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it, he being dead still speaks. And so what I want to emphasize is that last part here. He being dead still speaks. It's amazing to me that the New Testament writer says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that though Abel has been dead for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, he's still saying something. Yeah, Abel still has something to say to us. And really the goal of this study as a whole is to kind of figure out what did Abel say? What is the Hebrew writer alluding to here? And that's what I hope to do as we go through this study. Well, that's definitely the question that was on my mind. I don't know if in Hebrews 11.4 I've ever considered that final phrase of he being dead still speaks. And yeah, that's that's a natural question I have is what what's he trying to say to me if he's still speaking even in his death? So I, I'm sure you're going to answer that. Um, and, and you've got some structure to the way your story goes. So if if this question I'm about to ask is helpful to answer now, great. And if it's helpful to delay, then uh, just let me know. But maybe I'm curious about if I'm, I'm putting myself in the shoes of someone who's a Christian, who primarily reads in the New Testament, doesn't mm-hmm. have a lot of value in the Old Testament. So they're reading through the book of Hebrews, and they come across these names, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And maybe I have a, a very elementary understanding of Abel and Cain, but who are these guys? And why? Are, what are they doing in Hebrews 11? And, and what's the point of, of uh, their role in the Bible narrative? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question. So I think to understand Cain and Abel, we can take a step back. You know, most people are familiar with Adam and Eve, right? We've all heard stories of Adam and Eve our entire life. You know, Cain and Abel are the sons of Adam and Eve. And so that's a pretty close connection we have there. And what's interesting to me about Cain and Abel is that 
in their life, we see a lot of uh, fundamental things. The first thing we really read about Cain and Abel is we're introduced to who they are, and then we see them uh, approach and worship God. And we can look at that in a second, but we're going to see two very different outcomes for Abel's sacrifice and worship of God and Cain's sacrifice and worship of God. And what stands out to me and what's the most well-known fact about the story of Cain and Abel is oftentimes we just kind of read this story and we see, and no spoilers, guys, but Cain <laughs> murders Abel. I'm just going to put it out there. <laughs> Cain murders Abel. And a lot of the times I think we just kind of read through that story of Cain and Abel and we say, okay, Abel was murdered. Cain's a pretty bad guy. And then we just kind of keep reading. But as you know, and as I know, there's a lot more to that story than just the fact that Cain murders Abel. There's a lot of applications and there's a lot to learn from it. And so I kind of hope we can do that as we go through this structure. Now, I, I'm a note taker. I take notes and I really appreciate structured points. And so I'm just going to kind of go through the points we're going to have if someone's maybe interested in that. Nice. So really, we're going to look at three things about the story of Cain and Abel. We're going to look at Abel's worship. Cain and Abel are going to worship God. And what can we learn about that? We're going to see that Cain murders Abel. So our second point will be Abel's murder. And what can we learn from the murder of somebody? It seems like there's not much to learn there, but the New Testament said this, says otherwise. And then finally, we're going to look at the blood of Abel. What can we learn from that? Again, and what does the New Testament writers use that example to teach us? I love structure. I'm glad you did it. And so what I'll probably do is I'll bring our listeners back to that structure as we go through it, uh, just to make sure we're all on the same page. So we're like again, you you said Abel's worship, Abel's murder, and Abel's blood. These are going to kind of be the three big ideas from your study. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, absolutely. why don't you once you get us started on Abel's worship? Yeah, absolutely. And so what I want to do is I kind of want to skip ahead of myself a little bit, but I want to set the expectation for kind of where we're at in the Bible. You know, in Genesis 3 is where Satan deceives Adam and Eve and sin enters the word. You know, we refer to it as the fall. And we can talk about that more if you'd like, but really what we see is when sin enters the world, God is just. And so God gives three different curses to Adam, to Eve, and to the serpent or to Satan, right? But what stands out to me is as God is cursing, he puts a blessing within it. And so I'd like to look at a verse. In Genesis chapter 3, I'd like to look at verse 15. This is going to be God speaking to Satan. And so Genesis 3.15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And maybe that seems like kind of cryptic language, but actually, this is an amazing prophecy. Uh, I'm not into big words, but I guess scholars refer to this as the proto-evangelium. And all that means is the first gospel. And what this is, is the first prophecy of Jesus within the Bible. Where we read it says, uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So we see the seed of Satan and the seed of man. And then the Bible says, he shall bruise your head. So that would be the seed of man or the seed of woman, and you shall bruise his heel. And what we're seeing there is ultimately Jesus's conquering of Satan and of death on the cross. But the only reason we know that is because we have the New Testament 
and we can look back and reference that kind of from a clearer point of view. What stands out to me is imagining kind of what Cain, or excuse me, what Adam and Eve thought as they heard that, because it's probably not the same as what we think. In fact, I know it's not because they didn't know of the entirety of the scheme of redemption. They didn't know of the entirety of the plan of God to save mankind. All that they knew was that through their seed, Satan would be crushed. And so when we come to Genesis 4, I want us to keep that context in mind, um, especially as we read Genesis 4 and 1. Okay. So the expect, I, I think what I'm hearing you say is that Adam and Eve, when they hear this uh, proto-evangelium, or however you pronounce that, um, they're going to be looking at it a little bit different than you and I do. We have the, the tremendous blessing of hindsight as well as the full gospel uh, revelation, whereas Absolutely. they're they're going to be hearing that their seed is going to help them overcome the devil. Mm-hmm. And so as they have children, they're going to put a lot of expectations on those kids. Yes, absolutely. Okay. In fact, when we look at Genesis 4 and verse 1, the Bible reads, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And so many people think, that Adam and Eve named Cain Cain because it means that they received a man from the Lord. They received their seed. So really, a lot of people think that they expected Cain to be the one to overcome Satan. But of course, as we go through the rest of the story, we're going to see the opposite. We're not going to see Cain overcome Satan, but we're going to see Cain be overcome by Satan. And so we can look at how exactly that happens. So Cain's name means acquired. I'm always curious what the word Abel means. Yeah, so the word Abel, I think there's some differences of opinion as to what the word Abel means. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it means in the Old Testament, but what it means in the New Testament, I believe, is is breath or something of that nature. And so some people say that, you know, Abel was just kind of like uh, a breath. He was there and he was wasted and then he was done away with. Uh, and he was like a waste of breath, if you will. Oh, wow. That's, <laughs> I mean, I know. I, I know these are real people, and yet their names carry so much with them. Oh, it's hard to even imagine why they would name him that, you know, if they. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. There's a, so I, I, I have Esword on my computer. As, as you were answering, I looked it up, and yeah, in, um, Strong's exhaustive concordance, the Hebrew word Hebel just means son of a son of Adam. But then it has this uh, little highlight next to it that says that uh, there's a, a sister word to it, Hebel, and it's spelled the same and it kind of looks like it's uh, written the same anyway. But it, its translation is emptiness or vanity. Uh, vanity, and figuratively it means something that is transitory or unsatisfactory. And uh, I think to put that in uh, the context of what you were just saying, a waste of breath, it's not that Abel was a bad guy, but it was. it's like a foreshadowing, even from the start, that, that this was going to be someone that had so much potential, and that potential, that potential is ultimately wasted. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So... Um, Go ahead. I was just going to say, I'd like to to read through here Genesis 4, 1 through 5, and kind of set the scene of what's happening and kind of 
beg some questions that I think are obvious, if that's okay. Sure. All right, so let's look at that. So we read verse 1. Let's start in verse 2. Then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So we're introduced to what the livelihood of these men were. You know, Abel was a rancher and Cain was a farmer in simple terms. Verse 3, And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Now, I think this is a really interesting set of verses because in my mind, if you're just reading this, it begs a lot of questions. It seems like we don't quite understand what's going on. All we know is that these two brothers came and offered a worship, a sacrifice, if you will, to God. But on the surface, it seems like God just arbitrarily chose Abel and he rejected Cain for no good reason. And I think it's important for us to understand really what's happening here because, you know, God is righteous, God is just, and God is no respecter of persons. So there has to be a reason that God chose Abel and he didn't choose Cain. It wasn't just because Cain was his favorite brother or anything, you know? Right. Yeah, I've I've thought about that. Uh, I know you're going to explain it, but I'm just processing, uh, you know, the offerings of an animal sacrifice versus the offerings of fruits and vegetables and um, or grains. And uh, part of me thinks, oh, well, it's because, you know, Abel gave more. You know, he gave he gave something that was alive. But then I also think about in the book of Leviticus, there's blood sacrifice, but there was uh, there was Thanksgiving offerings where people would put um, their grains and the, the fruits of the ground onto the altar as well. So uh, just to add more intrigue to it, it seems like both could be good, and yet mm-hmm. one wasn't well received. So what are, what am I supposed to make of that? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And really, there's a lot of different opinions in the world as to why Abel was accepted and as to why Cain was rejected. And I think there's some truth to the one that I'm about to offer, but I don't think it paints... The whole picture. Okay. You know, a lot of people look at the story of Cain and Abel, and they think the difference between Cain and Abel was their attitude. Uh, They'll say, you know, Cain came to God with a poor attitude. He was bitter. He didn't have an open heart. He wasn't feeling properly. His mind, soul weren't in the right place. And, you know, I think that might be true, but I don't think that covers the entirety of why he was rejected. Because if we look back, At Genesis 4, verses 4 and 5, the Bible says the Lord respected Abel, right? So he respected Abel as a person. He respected his attitude. He respected his perspective. But what else did he respect? He respected his offering. And the same is true of Cain. The Bible says, but he did not respect Cain. So no, God did not respect Cain, the person. He did not respect his character. But it also says he did not respect his offering. So I don't think it was only Cain's attitude that was rejected. I think it also had to do something with what Cain offered, what Cain sacrificed. But that still begs the question as to why. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking if God's not a respecter of persons, but it seems like he's uh, 
playing favorites here. You know, he 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 respects or um, in the ESV it says regards. He has a special regard for Abel, and he has a disregard for Cain. Not just in their sacrifice, but the person. So, what am I supposed to make of that? That God respects. Uh, you know, he has favorites. I know it seems like a difficult question. Something I'd like to throw out there too is somebody pointed out to me one time that this phrase did not respect in our modern vernacular translates to something along the lines of didn't even see, wasn't even looked at. So we could read that as Cain made this offering, Cain made this sacrifice to God and God didn't even bother to look at it. Somebody explained it to me one time. Maybe this is a crude example, but it's like you were going out on a date and you know, you put so much work into how you were looking. You did your hair up nice. You put on a really nice outfit. You were really feeling yourself, if you will. And then you went to go on your date and your date wouldn't even look at you. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, there certainly would be a, (laughs) a disappointment. Uh, and especially if you're the one paying for dinner, uh, No, absolutely. But you can imagine from a surface level why Cain would be so upset. And so I think it's important for us to understand what's happening here. And praise be to God that we have the New Testament, because a lot of the times what the New Testament does is it serves as an inspired commentary on the Old Testament. You know, Mm. it gives us insight to the events of the Old Testament that we wouldn't have except for by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so what I'd like to do is kind of flip back and transition to our opening verse, that Hebrews 11.4 verse. Okay. I want to point out just two words that especially stand out to me and think will give us some insight. Okay. So going back to Hebrews 11.4, the Bible says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And I'd like to highlight those first two words there. By faith. So the New Testament is making a distinction here for us. It says that Abel offered by faith. Cain didn't offer by faith. But I guess now we're kind of in the same spot because what does that mean? What does it mean to offer by faith? You know, in the religious world, we see a lot of different definitions for what faith is. Is faith just a feeling? You know, is it Abel woke up one morning and thought in his heart and of the best intentions? You know what God really wants? I just really feel in my heart that God wants a lamb. That's just what I think he wants. You know, is that what faith was? Was faith just Abel walking through his ranch and looking at the sheep and being provoked and saying, oh, oh, all of a sudden I know that this is what God wants. You know, what is faith? And I think that's a serious question and an important question, not only for this study, but for the entirety of the Bible, because faith is a very common word, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. And yeah. it's important as a Christian to really understand what that is. I like that point. I like the, those two words because I know where you're going with it. And I think we share a common view of what faith is. And uh, I won't spoil maybe the verse that you want to share with it. But I, I think the point that you're making here is essential in that faith can't be synonymous with just acknowledging God, which is what the the a lot of the religious community around us wants faith to be. We're saved by faith alone. Uh, you know, it's uh, by grace through faith, and that means that you just got to accept the Lord into your heart. And so, a lot of times, we're we're playing cleanup 
by going behind people and sweeping up after them and trying to fix this uh, very flawed definition of faith, which is just to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. But I think about the book of James, chapter 2, where it, you know the, the writer there makes this point, even the demons believe and they tremble, but it doesn't mean they're saved. So belief or acknowledgement without something else is is not the same. And so that's kind of, I'm, I think I get where you're going with Cain. Cain probably acknowledged that there is a God. I mean, he ends up talking to him in Genesis mm-hmm. 4, that there's a big difference between acknowledging that, that that God is real, acknowledging his will, and then being by faith doing the will of God. So now that I've rambled enough, what do you feel is a better definition of uh, faith than simply believing that Jesus is Lord? Well, I think a good way to answer that question is to figure out where does faith come from? And luckily enough, for us, and praise be to God, we don't have to guess what that is because the Bible tells us. And I'd like to read a verse, and I think this is a really important verse. We use it a lot. We preach it a lot. And I think for a good reason. If you're one who's into memorizing verses, I think this should be one of them. I'd like to flip over to the book of Romans, and we'll look at Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 and figure out what we can learn about faith from that verse. There, the Bible reads in Romans 10 and verse 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, I'll say it again, and hearing by the word of God. I think that is a fundamental point. Where does faith come by? Faith comes by hearing, hearing somebody speak or teach the word of God. And so let's kind of put two and two together here. If Abel offered to God by faith, and faith comes by hearing the word of God, what does that imply? Mm. And I think that's important mm. because when we read the account in Genesis 4, you know, we don't read of God saying anything to Cain and Abel, right? Right. right. It just seems arbitrary. But okay. the New Testament gives us insight that that wasn't the case. Because if faith comes by hearing, that means that Abel, and that also includes Cain, were told what to do. And if Abel offered by faith, all that means is God told him what he expected and Abel obeyed. And that kind of paints Cain in a different light, too, because at first read, you might think, man, I kind of feel bad for this guy. I feel bad for Cain, of course, before he murders his brother. Right. (laughs) But this paints a completely different light because it wasn't just Cain arbitrarily being accepted. What we see here now is Cain passionately disobeying God. God told them what he expected. And if God expected Cain to, to make an offering to him, by faith, like Abel did, that means he told him what he wanted, the kind of offering he wanted, the kind of worship he wanted. And that shows us that Cain disregarded what God expected of him. You know, hearing you say that, uh, talking about how the New Testament has given us a better picture of the Old Testament, there's a skill here. And I think a lot of our people uh, know this skill, and especially those who are involved in teaching, they may be familiar with what we call a hermeneutic, right? And that is a, a the method by which we interpret the Bible. And um, these hermeneutics, sometimes they're questioned and sometimes they're challenged. But the, the way that we interpret the Bible, um, and I think it's, it's a healthy reminder, is that we look for commands 
and we look for Bible examples, and we look for what we call necessary inference. That means there's no other conclusion that you can reach other than this inferred conclusion based on, you know, uh, logic and reasoning. And what you've just done for us is you've helped show, we've necessarily inferred that even though it doesn't state it in Genesis chapter 4, by reading the book of Hebrews, we necessarily infer and really not. I mean, it's it's an example because of it says it explicitly by faith. But if I read through Genesis alone, I would have to infer. And thankfully, Hebrews helps me do a little bit more than that. But there's a necessary inference that, that Abel obeyed God. And I think that's the faith element. You know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What did Abel do? Abel heard and he believed and he obeyed. And we can infer that, even though maybe it's not spelled out word for word. He he heard, he believed, and he obeyed, whereas Cain didn't. Cain may have heard, but he, he definitely didn't believe and obey um, because God didn't accept his sacrifice. I feel that's a very healthy skill for our people to have, is to know this hermeneutic and put it to work of looking at Bible commands, examples, and necessary inference. And it'll be just such a healthier way of looking at the scriptures than just kind of casually reading through it. You, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we say this a lot. The best way to interpret the Bible is by using the Bible. So if we ever have two different passages that say something about each other, we should be quick to study and read out those passages before we read or reference anything else, because we're going to be much more sound in our conclusion, if we're only using the Bible to interpret itself, um, and I think that's and that's what I hope we've done. We've done here. Good. Well, um, you are not done in the New Testament, even though we're still talking about uh, Genesis chapter four, Abel's worship. And I'm curious about why uh, we're spending so much time in Hebrews whenever we're supposed to be studying Genesis four. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'd like to look at a passage. In Hebrews chapter 9, because what this does for us is kind of allow us to understand maybe why practically God wanted a blood sacrifice. And that's what we're going to see. Abel offered a blood sacrifice and Cain offered a grain sacrifice, if you will, like we talked about earlier. And I'd just like to read one verse. I'd like to look at Hebrews 9 and verse 22. There the Hebrew writer says, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so I think it's interesting. Going back to Genesis 3, as soon as sin entered the world and God's creation was no longer perfect in the sense that it was not sinless anymore, God had to be approached in a very special and a very reverent, revel, oh my, oh no, in a very reverential way. There you go. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's one of those big words. Um, and God can no longer just casually be approached. You know, we read in Genesis 2 and 3 that uh, Adam and Eve walked with God, and there was nothing separating them from God. But when sin entered the world, they were separated. And we see even in the Genesis account, you know, something that's always stood out to me is in Genesis 3, you know, when Adam and Eve realized that they were naked, what did they do? They covered themselves with those fig leaves. But it stands out to me that in Genesis 3, I don't have this in the PowerPoint, but I'll read it. In Genesis 3, 21, the Bible reads, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics 
of skin and clothed them. So for some reason, the fig leaves that Adam and Eve used were not sufficient. And so God clothed them with a tunic of skin. But I think maybe something we can speculate about and something that's interesting to me is for a tunic of skin to be made, something probably had to die. Yeah. An animal probably had to die and be sacrificed in a way to cover the sins of Adam and Eve. And so we see even in Genesis 3, God always needed to be approached by blood. And, you know, even us as New Testament Christians, of course, we don't approach by the blood of bulls and goats, but we definitely approach God by the sake of blood because for us, that sacrifice was Jesus Christ. That was Jesus on Mount Calvary. And he was the ultimate. He was the perfect sacrifice far superior to all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. But as we talked about earlier, God's character hasn't changed. Yes, there's different laws, but a lot of God's expectations are the same. And without blood, there is no remission of sins. And it's the same for us. We are justified because Jesus came to this earth and was willing to die a death for us. And so that's really interesting and stands out to me. Well, I'll I'll speculate with you one further. And that is in the same way that we can't save ourselves and we needed Jesus to cover our sins. Adam and Eve couldn't cover themselves. They tried mm-hmm. and they failed because their covering wasn't sufficient. And so there, there's, you know, one step further that how symbolic, I think it really happened, but I think it also is symbolic of the inability to cover ourselves and we needed the Lord to cover us. So. Uh, excellent points. Um, Hebrews 9, like you mentioned, that blood, the shedding of blood, that's just God's way. That's always been God's way because there's life in the blood and there's nothing more precious than uh, a life that's given for another. That's the that's the pinnacle of sacrifice. Um, you're not done in the New Testament, though, at least in the notes. I see you've got a thought from the book of Jude as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd like to point out something from the book of Jude. You know, Jude is going to use Cain as an example to combat false teaching. And so I'd like to look at Jude 1 and verse 11, and we'll just kind of read the first part of that verse. There the Bible says, woe to them. Well, what does that mean? What is a woe? It just means curses upon them. Curse them for doing this. Then it says, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have gone in the way of Cain. These false teachers that Jude is describing have gone in the way of Cain. And so I think a fair question to ask is, what does it mean to go in the way of Cain? And I think it harkens back to something you may have said earlier, that Cain was a man who believed in God, right? Cain obviously talked to God. But what was wrong with Cain is that Cain wanted to meet God on his terms. Cain didn't want to meet God on God's terms. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what it means to go in the way of Cain, Mm -hmm. is to be a believer of God to acknowledge that God exists, mm-hmm. but not wanting to meet God on his terms. And I think there's a very important lesson for us from that in regards to worship, in regards to really the Christian life. But I'd like to focus on worship. You know, worship is a great thing for us, right? It's encouraging, it's edifying, it's uplifting, and I definitely don't want to take away from that because I believe that strongly. But at the end of the day, worship isn't about us. Mm-hmm. Worship is about God. It's about giving God what He wants and what He expects. And we see that illustrated perfectly with Cain and Abel. That worship wasn't about Cain and Abel, it was about what God expected of them. And so, yeah, Cain was a farmer. And so maybe it was 
convenient for him to offer of the fruit of the ground. Maybe it was convenient for him to not have to ask his brother for a, a sheep, but it didn't matter because it's not what God wanted. And we need to make sure that we know that as New Testament Christians, because that principle is the same today. And in fact, I'd like to look at a verse that I think really perfectly illustrates that. Something that Jesus said in John chapter 4, John 4, verses 23 and 24, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman here, and he says, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so I think Jesus here is really giving us two different principles that our worship should be founded on. And those two principles are spirit and truth. And if we're going to break those down as simply as we can, spirit, I think, involves the right perspective, the right attitude, the right mindset. And that's something that Abel had, and that's something that Cain didn't have, like we talked about. But it also involves truth. Not only is it the perspective, but it also has to be according to the pattern. And I don't want to say that there should be no emotion in our worship. We shouldn't have an emotionless relationship with God. You know, it's a great blessing. It's a great privilege. In fact, it's the greatest blessing to be able to have a relationship with God. And that should make us feel some way. You know, we should have emotions about that, but not at the expense of sacrificing truth. It takes Mm -hmm. both. Mm -hmm. And so if someone out there was talking to somebody about you know, why do you worship the way that you do? Why don't you have instruments? Why don't you have the one cup? Or why do you have the one cup? Well, because we want to worship in spirit and truth. We want to worship with the right heart, with the right mind, but we also want to do it the way that God wants it, which is according to the pattern, which is according to truth. Well, what an what an incredible connection it is. Um, you're, you're bringing in a lot of New Testament ideas about Abel's worship and, and I've heard this before, right, that it really was just about Cain's attitude. And if Cain had a better attitude, then he would have been received better. Um, but I think you've done an excellent job of, of helping us see that uh, certainly Cain had an attitude issue, but his attitude issue is centered around not having faith, not wanting to believe and obey what the Lord says. Uh, you do have one point that I'd like to hear about um, before we move into the next one. So, you know, that your three big points was Abel's worship, Abel's murder, and Abel's blood. But I noticed that you you had something here about handling our emotions. The, the therapist in me really wants to hear about this. So yeah. I want to I hear about Genesis 4, 6, and 7, where Cain was struggling with uh, his emotional experience. And this has to do with that first point of Abel's worship. So tell me a little bit about um, yeah, absolutely. what you had here. This is kind of a side point, but this is something that really stands out to me and something that I think is really important to talk about. Um, Genesis 4, 6, and 7, we'll read it and then we'll talk about it. The Bible says there, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desires for you but you should rule over it. So what's happening here? God's telling Cain, listen, if you would have done the right thing, if you would have obeyed me, I would have accepted you. There would have been no problems about it. But if you disobey me, sin lies at the door and it wants you. Sin wants you, but you should rule over it. You should do the right thing. And so, of course, we see here that Cain had the opportunity to do the right thing, but he chose not to. But I'd like to go back to verse six 
And I'd like to highlight something. Of course, after this worship scene, after Cain is rejected, the Bible tells us that he's really overcome with emotion because God asks him, Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? Why is your face fallen? Why do you look so sunken? And something interesting to me is, of course, we know the story of Cain and Abel, right? Again, no spoilers. Cain murders Abel. But what stands out to me is maybe a root cause of that is that Cain didn't know how to handle his anger. Cain didn't know how to handle this strong emotion that he was feeling. And he could have gone to God. He could have apologized to God. He could have repented. He could have met God on his terms, but he refused to. And he just let his anger grow and grow and grow and grow. And ultimately, that climaxes in him murdering Abel. And now I would say that most people here, we don't have an interest in murdering anybody. That's not where our emotions would bring us. But we'd be silly to say that none of us would feel negative emotions at some point in our life because we all will. And it might not be anger like Cain, but you know what it could be? It could be pride. It could be guilt. It could be hate. It could be sorrow. It could be any list of emotions, anxiety, depression, whatever it may be. At some point in our lives, we are all going to have some negative emotions, something that's really pulling us down. And I think it's very important that we know what to do with that. Of course, Cain didn't know what to do. Cain tried to handle tried to handle it himself. But, you know, the Bible talks about this a little bit. And Philippians 4, 6 is really a verse that stands out to me. I don't have it on the PowerPoint here, but the Bible says in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. Now, I'd like to kind of stop and talk about that. That's really interesting to me because that tells me that God acknowledges that anxiety and mental struggle is a real thing. He wouldn't warn about it if it wasn't a real thing. And so he says, be anxious for nothing. But why can you be anxious for nothing? But in everything, by prayer and supplications, let your requests be made known to God. And so I think it's very interesting that God wants us to approach him. God wants us to actively involve him in our lives when we're struggling with negative emotions. I think the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. God wants us to bring our burdens. God wants us to bring our depression. God wants us to bring our negative feelings to him so he can help us work through it. And I think sometimes, you know, we want to shy away from talking about bad feelings. We want to shy away from talking about, you know, feelings at all. But I think it's really important to acknowledge it and know that it's something that we all feel. Um, Sorry, I'll step off of my soapbox. But I see that here with Cain and Abel. Cain didn't know what to do with his feelings and it resulted in a greater sin. And I think that can happen to us a lot too, is when we don't handle our emotions the right way, it'll lead us sin. Oh, oh, I'm, I'm totally on board with this. The Lord is giving Cain an opportunity to process his emotions. And so we can use our emotions, like you were saying, RC, to help understand, well, why am I feeling anxious right now? What, what's this anger about? And if we can process it down to its core, I bet what you'll find over and over again is there are some primary emotions that are really gnawing at your heart that are being used and you're lashing out with them in ways that are trying to make you feel better, but oftentimes it doesn't. And if we can get to a point where we understand those primary emotions and kind of the the needs that we have around them, then our emotional experience is going to help us 
follow the Lord's will. So there's my therapist soapbox for the moment. <laughs> but uh, man, this this question that the Lord asked, I guess I've never really thought about it the way that you've brought it out. And it's he's giving Cain an opportunity to process a very strong emotion. And Cain's silence speaks volumes to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to point out, you know, kind of practically, what does this look like? Well, I want to point out two things. You know, a good way to handle our emotion is firstly prayer. We should go to the Lord in prayer, but also people. You know, a great benefit of being a part of the kingdom of heaven, of being a part of the church, is that we're surrounded by family members. We're surrounded by people who deeply love and deeply care and deeply want to help us. And so, if anybody's struggling emotionally, don't be ashamed of it, but reach out to somebody. Talk about it. I can't guarantee that whoever you talk about, or whoever you talk to, rather, will have the answer to all your questions, but I guarantee you it'll help to try and work through your feelings with somebody, and I firmly believe that. Letting your feelings just bottle up inside and not asking questions and not reaching out is only going to make it worse. So if somebody's sitting there and they're having some serious you know, emotional problem, reach out to somebody so that, you know, you can get that help that you need and pray to God. Um, it, it will definitely help. Well said. Well said. Now, let me review. Uh, we spent a long time on this first point. Uh, you've got three big points, Abel's worship, Abel's murder, and Abel's blood. Well, we're going to stop right there and leave it as a cliffhanger. And I want you to come back next week so that you can hear more about lessons from Abel's grave. And we were able to talk some about Abel's worship. And remember, the three big points are Abel's worship, Abel's murder, and Abel's blood. And so let's uh, keep thinking about it. If I were you, I would take some time, if you haven't read it recently, to read Genesis chapter 4. And uh, until next week, you can be satisfied with the Scripture and then come back and hear more about this Bible study, Lessons from Abel's Grave. So until next week, go to the website, www.pureandsimplebible.com. Check out the resources that are there for you to, to use and utilize absolutely free. And always remember, God loves you very much. And I do too. I'm willing to see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you. Well, it's real.